as we continue our journey through the New Testament, um, we this week have wrapped up the book of Acts and have started the book of Romans. If you um, do not know, as a congregation, we are reading through the entirety of the New Testament in the first 90 days of the year. Um, I would encourage you, there should still be some reading plans out front. Go ahead and grab one of those. Join us. Just join us where we are at this point. Don't try and catch up. Um, Just join us uh, where we are. We're about halfway through the book of Romans now. And I would encourage you to do that as we read through these first 90 days of the New Testament. But as we got into Romans this week, I was excited um, because Romans is, Romans is one of those books that you feel guilty when you say that there are books of the Bible that are more important than other books of the Bible. And so maybe it's not that Romans is more important, but there are a few books of the Bible that have had the impact that Romans has had. There's a a very well-known story that Augustine tells in his Confessions that when as a young man, as a a professor of, of rhetoric in Milan, he is wrestling with the call that he knows that, that God has placed on him, that God is calling him to come and be a Christian. And he does not want to give up the life that he is living. And he knows that to be a Christian means to give up the life that he is living. It means to give up living with his mistress. It means giving up carousing with his professorial friends in Milan. It will mean sacrifice. And so Augustine tells the story that he is in a garden and he hears this child singing. Take up and read. Take up and read. He realizes that he has a copy of Romans with him and so he picks it up and he opens to Romans and that is the moment of his conversion. There's another well-known story about Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, as an Augustinian monk. And I I, I have to enjoy the parallelism of Augustine and the Augustinian monk, Martin Luther. But but Luther is wrestling and he's beginning to understand that that the teachings of the medieval church have, have gotten out of whack with Scripture and he's trying to understand what's going on and And Martin Luther was a man who was, even prior to the Reformation, deeply convicted of his own sin, would spend hours in the confessional confessing his sin, would leave and walk across the monastery and remember that he had forgotten something and walk all the way back to confess more. In fact, it got so bad at one point that his confessor said, Stop confessing to me. But Luther is wrestling how we have a man so warped by sin who, who desires nothing more than to love and serve God. Where, 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 how? And it was through the study of the book of Romans that Martin Luther came to understand that salvation was through grace alone. 
that there was nothing you, I, or any human being other than Jesus Christ who has ever lived can do anything to achieve our own salvation. But it is through Christ alone, faith in Christ alone, that we are offered grace alone, by God alone, for his glory alone. So I was a little excited when Romans came up. There was a a famous mid-century British pastor in London, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached through Romans on his Sunday evening services, and it only took him about 16 years to preach through the entirety of the book of Romans. I'm not going to do that to you. Yet. But we are in Romans. We're in Romans chapter 1. And it's important as we read Romans, and as you are reading through Romans with us, it's important. I will say this. I said don't try and catch up, and that's true. But if you're jumping in for the first time or you've missed a couple of weeks and you want to jump back in, start at Romans 1, even if it means you finish a couple of days later than the rest of it. Start at Romans 1 because Paul writes Romans, and it is an argument that starts at the beginning, and he builds the argument consecutively through the letter. And if you jump in in the middle of Romans, you have missed the groundwork that Paul has laid in Romans 1, 2, and 3. So we're in Romans 1. We're going to start with verse 18. We're going to read verse 18 through verse 25 in Romans 1 today. Will you stand with me as you are willing and able as we read the Word of God together? For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts became darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the Creator who is praised forever. Amen. This is the Word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear gracious God, as we open your Word today, as we turn to it to study it, God, I pray that the, the, the inherent wisdom of, your, of you, the inherent goodness of you, the inherent glory of you would be manifest to us, that we would show gratitude, that we would not become fools, but exchange our foolishness for your wisdom. For God, we are without excuse. And so, God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, 
our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. When you start really digging in, you can understand why it took Martin Lloyd-Jones about 16 years to make through, through the book of Revelation, because there are about six sermons in these verses. So I'm going to do my best to make it one and get you out in time to beat the Methodist to Fuller's or wherever it is you're going this morning. We start here. This is, this is the the beginning. This is, this is the beginning. It was the, the verses right before this, actually, that, that touched Luther. It was the verses right before this that, that, that convinced Luther of the doctrine of faith alone. If we move back to verse 16, we see, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, but also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So, so he's put this out there. He's started the argument. And then there's this, there's this word that it begins right there. And, and, and I'm thankful in the, in the CSB, in the Christian Standard Bible that we use um, as our main text uh, in this congregation, um, and, and I know it is also present in the English Standard Version, um, this word is present there at the beginning of verse 18. This word, for, F-O-R, for. The, the word that is in there in Greek is this word, gar, gamma, alpha, rho, G-A-R. Gar is one of those words that in Greek can mean a lot of different things but it often means for. And, and, and unfortunately, there are some translations, I believe the NIV takes out for here, drops it. And it doesn't really change the meaning except for this. That, that, that word is, is, is telling us, that, okay, the righteousness lived by faith. And what coming next in Paul, this wrath that Paul is about to talk to us about is connected backwards to this idea that the righteous live by faith. The righteous live by faith for God's wrath. is revealed. you understand how they're connected here? So just remember, just because there's a, there's a period and there's a new heading in your Bible doesn't mean that the argument is completed, that, that Paul is not building something here. So he starts with this word, with, with this word for, and then he gets to this concept, this word that, that some of you may have immediately gotten uncomfortable with when you heard me say it. This word, wrath. A lot of us are uncomfortable with, with wrath. We don't like the idea of, of wrath. And I will say that Scripture is very clear that whenever wrath is used to describe human behavior and human attitude, it is lifted up as sin. But whenever wrath is used in Scripture to describe God and talk about God, it means something different. You've got to remember to whom 
Paul is writing and when Paul is writing. This is called the book of Romans for a reason. Paul is writing this letter to the church, to the congregation that exists in the city of Rome. The most important city in the world at the time. The center of the empire. The center of the Greco-Roman world. The center of Roman pagan religion and philosophy at this time. He's writing to a church that had recently been separated and even more recently brought back together. All of the Jews had been expelled from Rome after the fire of Rome and they were, have just now been allowed back in. And some of the, the conflict that has occurred within the Roman church that Paul is writing to is conflict that has occurred because of the separation and coming back together. Their, their understanding of certain theological issues has diverged, and Paul is trying to bring them back together. Now, this is a church that Paul, at least to this point, has never visited. If you read the letter, you'll see that Paul does not know these people except by reputation. They do not know Paul except by reputation. Some of them have met him in other places. But this is not a, a church that Paul has established. He doesn't have that kind of personal relationship with them. But he's, he's writing to them, and, and, and he's writing, and he uses this word wrath. And, and if that word had been used in the first century, it brought with it, just as it does for us, all of these presuppositions and, and context that comes with it. See, see the, the Greeks, just like us, would have viewed wrath as a, as a bad thing in humans. But, but divine wrath, the wrath of the gods, was a little different. It wasn't like human wrath. Human wrath is blind rage, but the, the wrath of the gods was never that, and in fact always rested on a specific claim. The Romans had a very similar view to the Greeks. Of course they did, because they basically just copied Greek culture. But for Rome, wrath becomes, the wrath of the gods becomes more specific. It is primarily directed at neglect of the gods. When you neglected your responsibility to the gods, that is what brings on wrath. The wrath of the Roman gods fell especially on those whom were impious. The Romans also understood certain political events civil war and, and mutinies and, and this sort of civil unrest as manifestations of divine wrath. You couldn't keep a Caesar on the throne because everybody kept fighting. It's because the Roman people weren't pious enough and the gods were delivering their wrath on the Roman people. So into that context, into these people who who thought this way, God, Paul writes about God's wrath. God's wrath is this. God's wrath is his absolute, total and complete, perfect opposition to sin and evil. So in a lot of ways, it's not terribly dissimilar from that Roman idea, right? 
that God's wrath, that divine wrath comes and to be visited upon the impious? It's, it's not dissimilar there. The wrath of, of God comes and is, is manifest because it is his absolute opposition to sin and evil. If God is perfectly holy, he cannot coexist with sin. If God is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, he repels all that is not that. Do you ever, do you ever um, um, do that thing like in, in, in science class when you were a kid and you, started, and you learned about hydrophobic and hydrophilic things, right? So there's certain things that love water. Those are hydrophilic things, right? Philic, philos, love. Hydrophilic, they, they love water. You know one of the things that loves water? Denim jeans. Is there anything in the world more unpleasant than wet, soaked jeans? Because it loves it, right? It sucks that water up, and it gets heavy, and, and then it gets weirdly, it gets itchy, and, 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 and uncomfortable and cold. But then there are things that are hydrophobic, from phobos, from fear, repelling, things that re- repel water, right? There are certain materials that repel water. Who of you have a, a pair of, of, of boots or shoes or a jacket that has Gore-Tex in it? Most of us do, right, these days. Gore-Tex is a hydrophobic material. It doesn't like water, and so the water doesn't get into the material. It repels it, and it rolls down it. Oil is hydrophobic. Oil does not like water. So, so when something mixes like oil and water, what does that mean? It means it doesn't mix, right? The oil just sits on top of the water. God and sin are oil and water. They want nothing to do with each other. So this wrath of God is not, it's important to note, is is not a, a future judgment. It's not that at some point in the future God's wrath is going to come on the people who have rejected him. God's wrath is present now. It is a present reality. God's wrath today, right now, abides on the unbeliever who stand presently condemned. Those who are unbelievers will not be condemned at some point in the future. They are condemned now. You want to know sometimes why your life doesn't work out right? Because you are standing under God's wrath. At the end, we see this, right, in verse 24. Therefore, God delivered them over to the desires. This is the, there are three times. This is the first of three times in Romans 1 that, that Paul uses this phrase, that God delivers the people over to their desires. And what that means is, is I have created the world in such a way that you're about to see the consequences of your actions, and I'm going to remove my divine restraining hand. And the chickens are going to come home to roost. Every action has what? 
an equal and opposite reaction. It's not just a law of physics. It's a law of the universe. But we see that God's wrath, right? God's wrath comes, but it's revealed what? It's revealed from heaven. It's not something that comes from us. It's not something that comes from anything other than from God. It is real, it is severe, and it is personal. And it is how God maintains his moral order, which demands justice and also demands retribution for injustice. Brothers and sisters, it's important to know this. God's wrath can make us uncomfortable. Because we we want God, what? We want God to be love. And love means there is no wrath. Well, first of all, any of you who have ever had children know that's not true. Sometimes love is, boy, I'm going to snatch you bald-headed if you touch that stove one more time. Why? Because touching the stove is going to burn him. We, we, we don't like this idea of God's wrath. But brothers and sisters, apart from his wrath, there is no salvation. Because without action against sin, there is nothing from which sinners need to be saved. We talk about the good news of the gospel, and it is wonderful, majestic, amazingly good news. But it's good news because there's bad news. And the bad news is this. If you are not in Christ, God's wrath is on you. two other places that I wish for us to really focus in on this morning. Two verses, with three, two or three verses that are connected, although not directly next to each other. Verses 22 and 23 say this, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, four-footed animals, and reptiles. And then we come down to verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the Creator who was praised forever. Do we see how these are connected? And this is, this is basically Paul stating the same thing twice. Right here together. And in the middle is that first of the three, and God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. I want you to find me two verses in Scripture that are a better summation of the world in which we live than these two. How many times are we told, well, studies show that 
and then are told something that is in direct contradiction to the Word of God. Studies tell us that if we don't affirm a five-year-old's transgender identity, they're going to kill themselves. Well, first of all, show me the study. One's never been done. Second of all, exchanging the wisdom of God. God created them, what? Male and female exchanged it for a lie. And we're seeing the chickens come home to roost. As more and more primarily young women are detransitioning and talking about that what they needed was not surgery and hormones, but love and the truth. Just one example in our culture. Satori talked about it. How often do we think we know best? How often do we assume that we know what the right thing to do is? Brothers and sisters, this is the lie of the garden. This is the lie of the serpent. Eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you will be what? Like gods. We've replaced ourselves as gods. I get to choose what's right and what's wrong. The problem with that is it's foolishness. When we were kids, at some point, our mom and dad told us not to do something and we didn't understand why, right? Maybe all of you were much better kids than I was or much smarter than I was. I don't know. And maybe this doesn't apply to you, but but it applies to me. At, At some point, multiple times, I was told, don't do that. Why? Because it's not good for you. Well, I don't understand why it's not good for me. And so I went out there and did it, and guess what? It wasn't good for me. Carter, I don't think it's a good idea for you to move in with your girlfriend off campus at college. It's not good for you. Oh, yeah? Well, I'll show you. Jump to a year later. Guess what? It wasn't good for me. It was a bad idea. And we do this, right? I mean, I mean, this is part of this is part of growing as a human being, right? I mean, I mean, I've got a 20-month-old at home who I will tell him no and will look me dead in the eyes and do the thing again, right? He's pushing the envelope. He's pushing the boundaries. He's, he's learning where the boundaries are. That's part, of being a, that's part of growing up. It's part of being a kid. It's part of being a human. It is because we live in a fallen world. But brothers and sisters, if we decide that we are going to throw this out and replace it with anything other than God's will and God's design, we are destined for a world of pain and hurt because God will remove his hand from us, the chickens will come home to roost, and we will live under God's wrath.
There's a word in the middle, a phrase in the middle of the reading today. Without excuse. The people were without excuse. How can it be without excuse, Paul? Paul lays it out. The plan of God, the divine order of creation, points to God's existence, God's glory, and God's wisdom. You want to know how wise God is? Go look at a healthy ecosystem. It's self-sustaining, right? We learned about that in school. You have, a, you have a field, there's too much grass in the field, the bunnies come in and eat the grass, and then there's a little too many bunnies, and what happens? The grass goes down, the bunnies don't have as much to eat, some foxes move in, and there's a balance. There's a perfect order and balance to it. And then what happens? Mankind comes in, he plows the meadow, he builds a house, the order is overthrown. If you want to see the glory of God, look at his creation. If you want to see the glory of God, look, not me, but look, look, at, look, at, the human, look at the human body. How wonderfully complex and delicate and perfectly balanced the healthy human body is. And then what do we do? We're turned over to the desires of our hearts and we degrade our bodies. Brothers and sisters, we are without excuse. There is no excuse. There is no objection. Well, I didn't know. Yeah, you did. Because if you looked around, you would see it. But here's... Here's the thing. Here's the thing. The wrath is only present because the salvation from the wrath is also a possibility. Remember that word that we talked about that was so important? For. Remember what came before it? The righteous live by faith. Yes, we are without excuse. Yes, there is a wisdom in God's design. Yes, we, 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 we need to be careful what we do. But it's not doom and gloom. Because the righteous live by faith. Let's turn it around. Those of us who live by faith are made righteous by God because he extends and robes us in the righteousness of the Son, just as the Son took on our sin on the cross. So when you hear wrath and when you hear without excuse and when you hear foolishness instead of wisdom, don't be alarmed. Don't be, don't be put off by it. Don't, don't be put out by it. Embrace it. Embrace the truth of God's wrath. 
Because the truth of God's wrath is also the truth of God's love. They exchange the truth of God for a lie and serve what was created instead of the Creator, who is, not should be, not might be, not will be, the Creator who is praise. Let us live not by lies, but by the truth, by faith, recipients of unfounded grace. Our hymn of invitation is going to be hymn number 296, Jesus is Lord of all. As we... We sing this morning, if you wish to come forward, to unite with this fellowship, to make a commitment of faith, a, a profession of faith for the first time, a rededication, just wish to